Welcome to the Wealthier Together podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to help women cultivate wellness in all areas of their lives. So today we're going to be talking with Pam Larkin and we're going to be talking about navigating relationships as we get older. So whether it's dating relationships or it's friendships or just family relationships, we all know that these relationships play a huge role in our health, our wellness, and our well-being. And so today I'm going to be talking to Pam Larkin. Pam Larkin is a licensed clinical professional counselor who graduated from Wheaton College with her master's in clinical psychology. With eight years of clinical experience, Pam joined the team at Optimum Joy Clinical Counseling just under six months ago. In her work prior to Optimum Joy, Pam flourished in her pursuit of integrating her passion for social justice and mental health while working with those who struggle with severe mental illness. In her work at Thresholds, a community mental agency in the Chicagoland area, Pam grew up as she offered community support in lower-income homes and later became an assistant program director. Funny enough, it was there that she met her husband. Pam is enthusiastic about her work with Optimum Joy, and she offers clinical supervision and counseling to individuals and couples. She is most excited to talk to others about dating, women's concerns, ethnic identity development, and spirituality. So welcome, Pam. How are you doing today? I'm great, Dr. Blessing. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? So how did you get into counseling? I touched on some things, but tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so I first became interested in the field of psychology while I was in college. I think college was an important time in my life, like it is for most people, where they grow stronger in their identity, in their ethnic identity, and their faith journey, and their gender experience, and that was no different for me. And it was through that experience in college that I started to actually struggle emotionally myself. So I struggled with feeling like I needed to be perfect, like I needed to hold things together, And as a result of that, it impacted my eating and sleeping. So after many doctor's appointments and my parents rushing me back and forth at different points, um, we finally landed that uh, seeing a counselor was actually probably the next best step. So it was during that time, uh, during my first counseling session, where I found that someone finally got what I was feeling and experiencing. And she didn't minimize it. She didn't say that I was crazy. She didn't pretend that it wasn't real. Uh, She really validated my feelings. And I really grew a lot in my own personal emotional health as a result of that first counseling experience. Um, So that was kind of what drew me into the field of counseling. That is definitely a very unique view and you have a unique experience because from what I know from my cultural background, my parents are Nigerian and I definitely the, the cultural, you know, just African-Americans in general, um, counseling is not something that people are like, yay, you should go do. There's kind of a stigma. Well, no, there is a stigma around it. So how did you, how are you using your experience to I guess, normalize that conversation. So people aren't saying, you know, like if someone's like, oh, I need to go see a counselor, you know, people aren't like, oh, that person is crazy. How do you normalize that? Yeah, I usually laugh and joke around with them about 
the fact that counseling is not like the movie Get Out. Um, it's not about someone trying to manipulate you or um, trying to kind of hide this part of you. Um, it is not like that at all. I think it really is a place where we can uh, feel empowered as you learn more about yourself um, and as you experience healing within yourself. Um, I think that oftentimes, particularly in the African-American community, we look for similar counseling, but through um, leaders within our communities. So our faith communities, uh, we look for that counseling through people that mentor us. Um, I think that there aren't as many folks who think, oh, maybe what I need to see is a counselor. The other, I think, barrier that keeps people from seeing a counselor is the finances. So it's okay to come to counseling if I can do it for free, but why would I pay you for an hour to listen to me talk? Can't I do that with my neighbor? Um, and so I think I've had quite a few conversations with folks about the differences between counseling and kicking it with your neighbor next door so well the difference between talking with your neighbor and a counselor is that that counselor is going to listen to you there's no judgment and they guide you through a process to acknowledge your feelings and then identify patterns that you can that you that have gotten you this far coping mechanisms that have gotten you this far and then most people that go to counseling are ready for change and so they help you basically they help guide you and help mm -hmm. you identify those patterns that you're not that you know are there, but you're not aware of. And then they help you, they guide you along the, pro the process to basically process these feelings and then heal. Whereas your neighbor, I don't think that's their intention. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that our neighbors may have our, our good in mind, um, but I think that you summarize counseling really all kind of difference of it. And I think the other thing that I would share about it is I feel like when people come to counseling, they are ready for change and they're willing to look at more of their life. So I know you can't see this, but I'm holding my hands up. And I think that oftentimes in life, we look through like a small view of our lives. And counseling says, let's widen that view up. Uh, when you're courageous enough, when you feel like you have the capacity to look at the whole picture, that is what counseling is for. And I think that sometimes doing that with family or friends is tricky because they can't be objective because they have their own experiences uh, with you that they're bringing to the table. So that's true. The counselor for the most part, you shouldn't know them. So personally, so the counselor has an objective view and can see mm -hmm. things that your family members may be blinded to or friends may be blinded to because they see a different perspective of you or a different side of you. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's very important to make that distinguishment. And I think the act of paying for something that's going to improve the, your quality of life or lead you closer to healing means that you're invested. Because when you do it for, when you, if someone, let's say, gets counseling for free, it doesn't, there, since there's no commitment, there's no, 
there's nothing that makes them act on whatever you've told them. So if you're like, well, you need to improve your communication skills and you, you know, have a little plan for them. When someone has put money down, they're more likely to be like, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this, as opposed to just getting it, you know, free. But I also understand that finances is a big issue. And I know that a lot of people are like, well, you know, let's say they find a counselor and it also depends on that specific counselor and what they charge. But people have told me, well, I can't pay $250 a session, which is, you know, that makes sense. Everyone can't do that. So are there ways Mm -hmm. that people can get access to counseling or find ways to find people who don't charge as much, if that makes sense? Yeah. So so I have my LCPC, which is kind of a higher level license. And then within the state of Illinois, the the license right below that is an LPC. Um, And oftentimes folks who are at that level tend to charge a little bit lower than those who have their higher level license. The difference is that the lower level license they are continuing to receive support and supervision from someone who has their who has their higher level license. So they're they're basically counselors in training. They've gone through school, so they are definitely competent. But they they just have someone else who is reading their notes and doing supervision with them. And so they're definitely qualified to meet with individuals. And so that is one way to make counseling more affordable. I think the other thing that we have seen is different offices are able to provide uh, sliding scale rates. And you'll find that it's easier to have a sliding scale rate if you're working as part of a group practice, right? Because it doesn't just depend on you um, as a counselor to kind of meet the needs of the practice. You have kind of a whole group. And so in a group practice level, you also have the opportunity for more sliding scale options. The other thing is looking at practices that offer interns. Interns are, again, they're people in training, uh, but they are students getting their master's uh, who are also being supervised by someone with a higher level license. And as a result of that, the prices can go even lower. The other thing that I found that has been encouraging in terms of helping to make counseling more affordable is there's nothing that says you have to meet with your counselor once a week. Uh, if If you're doing well and feel like you can maximize your time well, you could meet twice a month and that would bring down the costs of therapy. And then the last thing that I have found that's been really helpful is when you partner with a different organization that may be able to help cover part of the cost. So we have individuals whose churches benevolent uh, offering have been able to make payments towards uh, their counseling services. Yeah, so it's a lot of different ways. I think uh, my dream would be for it to be free for everyone. I do think that it's, it's a benefit for everyone. Um, but I also think that there are ways that we have tried to kind of 
make it affordable. So I think that's important, especially, um, and thank you for providing those other options that people can look at, because I don't want it to be, you know, talk about counseling, and then people are like, well, how am I going to afford it? So yeah. I like things to be definitely practical for people. And you've given four different options of how people can get those services if they need them. And then they can work from there. I always say start with what you have and then work from there. So, you know, just group intern LPCs, go ahead and, you know, if you're listening and you feel that you need counseling, these are definitely good options to check out. And, mm -hmm. you know, do your research, check it out. And then if you need counseling, go ahead and, and get that. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to ask you some of my client questions. So yeah. the first question is, since you specialize in relationships, so the first question is, how do you get back into dating after being single for over five to 10 years? Yeah. Do you know the context of that question? Like, was someone asking how to get back into dating because they've consciously made a decision at some point in their lives that they're not going to date? Was it that they were married and then decided? This person made a conscious decision not to date and now is ready to get back into that dating pool, but they have no idea because it's been so long. Mm, for sure. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of dating right now, from what I've heard from clients, um, is that a lot of it is online-based. And so I think first there's kind of a an adjustment of, oh, the way that you meet people now may be different than the way that you met people ten, five, ten years ago. So I think kind of first being aware of that reality, it's the same way with like, social media right so first it was AOL and now it's Facebook and Snapchat and you know all of these things so recognizing that the mode in which people use to meet people a lot of it is through online I wouldn't say that it's the only thing um, I do still think that there is something to be said about meeting people in the places that you already are so work school friends, activities or hobbies that you engage in. I think that those are also spaces where you can meet individuals still. And I think that you should be prepared for the fact that you may have to join an online dating group or you might need to find meetup activities through Facebook. So that, that would be kind of my, my first thing is to recognize that dating now has moved into the, the internet worlds. And sometimes that world is very difficult to navigate. I know a lot of people's anxieties come up with like rejection and ghosting and all these things that, I mean, I guess people did it before, but it's just mm -hmm. more prevalent now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people have gotten more savvy with that. And so I have a few friends who are using online dating apps and they are really cautious about when they give personal information, right? So, mm -hmm. and this would be true if you were meeting with someone in person, you're not going to tell them where you live and, 
where you work and all that stuff. You wouldn't do that during a first date or during a first interaction anyways until you have a sense that you can trust that person. Those principles would still apply in the online dating. That's, that's very true. So when is being selective about dating too over the top? You know, I have had a few folks tell me that when they go on dates, they can tell right away that that person is not a good fit. And I often ask them, how is you making that decision so quickly? How is that serving you? Or how is that protecting you? And I think that that question can kind of apply to when you look at is, are my expectations too high? Where did those expectations come from? Is it because of the relationships that I have had with my parents? And so therefore I have a certain type of attachment um, or sense of connection or security to other people. Um, Is it that my family growing up, their, their relationship looked a certain way. And so I'm expecting this new relationship to also look that way. Maybe it's someone who has experienced trauma in their life and really struggles with being, you know, trusting other people. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot more characteristics of like, what is influencing these characteristics, this list that I came up with? And how tightly am I holding to that list? Why am I holding on to that list? Is it to help me or am I acting out of fear? I think that fear is a liar. It's not, and it can often be unhelpful in in making a wise decision, so. That makes sense. A lot of people date with fear and then they make really poor decisions based on that. So how can someone prepare emotionally for dating? Because it is a little bit more, it seems a little bit more rigorous. Maybe it's just the apps and people swiping to the left and to the right. How can people prepare emotionally? Because with friends, I've noticed that dating like will uncover emotional wounds and then people will start reacting. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you can't necessarily prepare prepare for how you're going to react, right? It's kind of one of those things you don't realize that there's a wound until you touch it. And then you're like, oh, that was there. Um, But I do think that if you are someone, I think that the ways that you can prepare is to look at what are my patterns of being in relationships? Like what have those looked like in the past? What Mm -hmm. have I noticed about myself during that time? What are the things that I liked in that relationship? What didn't I like in that relationship? Um, Do I feel drawn to this person when I'm with them? Do I want to say yes to another date? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I think if I've had fun, then I'm going to say yes again to another date. So is this person drawing me towards them or away from them? And assuming that I know what my needs are emotionally, is this person meeting that need? Like if I was sick, do I trust that they would do, you know, bring over chicken soup? If I said I needed you to hold my hand because I'm afraid of 
walking by these dogs? Do I trust that that person would hold my hand? Those are, I think, a few things you can do in preparation. And then I think just being, you know, generous and compassionate with yourself when things come up that you didn't know were an issue or are still an issue for you. Basically, it sounds like a lot of internal work has to be done before stepping out into dating. And so for the most part, you think that someone is doing that along the way because it seems like it brings up a lot of things. And so mm-hmm. I would advise if you feel like you need to go to counseling to kind of uncover those things so you can go in a little bit help. Uh, you can go into dating with a more healthy emotional state. I think that that would definitely be best. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in doing that, you can be your more authentic self and you can be more authentic about what you are looking for in a relationship. So instead of feeling like, oh, I'm settling because I really wanted this person to hold my hand, but he doesn't like to hold my hand, I can actually say, well, actually, no, I'm not going to, because that is something that I've identified that I need in a relationship. That is really true. And also communicating. A lot of times we think that we're communicating clearly, but it takes another person to get really close to you to realize (laughs) that maybe not, maybe not. Absolutely. So how can people improve their communication skills, especially if they want to enter a relationship or if they're already in one? especially communicating needs, because I know that some people will hide it, hide it, and then snap. Yeah, I think there, I think there's kind of a couple of things. Number one, what is your mode of communication? Are you someone who communicates with a lot of feeling words? Are you someone who communicates via lots of ideas? Are you someone who communicates very directly. Um, I think that it's important to understand kind of how you communicate in general, and then how do you manage conflicts? Are you someone who is assertive, or are you someone who finds themselves to be more passive? I think that those are trends that then you'll see uh, come up when you're trying to communicate your needs in a relationship. So I think, again, it kind of goes back to the, what do you know about yourself first in terms of communication style? And then how does that work in your favor or against you if you're communicating with someone who has a different communication style than you? Okay, so basically you have to know yourself before trying to get in a relationship because if you don't, It causes, because you are supposed to be, and especially if your goal is marriage, people think, I've seen a lot of people, especially when they get real desperate, it's like, oh my goodness, we're going to be together all the time, all the time. And I'm just like, no, that's not going to really work. Like you need to have your own friends. You need to have, your, that person is not God. They cannot fulfill all these things. And you have to really come to that realization. And so I'll talk with people that are, um, have been married for a while who have had things happen because that's a better reflection than someone who got recently married. Because you want, for me, I look, I'm like, okay, what, where do I want to be? And how do I want to frame, you know, my life when I do get married? And so I usually look to people that have been married for a while and have had, you know, (laughs) things happen because that's really when it's tested. 
And I think in our society, everyone's like, oh, the wedding day. And it's so pretty. I'm like, that is the day you have, like, whatever your lifespan <laughs> are. And then it's not as pretty as the wedding magazines. Like, you have to make day-to-day decisions. You know, if you're a woman that's really, really ambitious, you can't just be running over your husband. So I think that... <laughs> Knowing yourself and then being able to communicate your needs and wants and also allowing that other person to do that is part of that relationship. It's not just, oh, I have someone that'll do everything for me. It, it, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people go in with just these misconceptions and all, you know, mm-hmm. glowy. And, you know, it, it's... It's, it's like life. You know, you have those really wonderful, beautiful high points. And then as life, you have seasons. And so I, I think that mm-hmm. people don't realize mm-hmm. that it's just like, oh, it's in the happy unicorn season. <laughs> and, you know, it really does. You first have to know yourself. And especially like you were talking about knowing how you deal with conflict, because it will come up. And if you're emotionally healthy and you know how you communicate with others and you can accept the way whoever you're, you know, either dating or married to communicates, the better you can communicate, the, I won't say the less problems you'll have, but you'll be able to work Mm -hmm. it out easier, right? You'll have a more effective partnership. And I just think people go in desperate and they're just like, I'll settle for anything. Someone that doesn't communicate, this person, you know, doesn't, I asked for this. And so Basically, your point on knowing yourself, I think, is extremely important. And a lot of times, women, especially in church, will just wait. Oh, he'll come and find me. You've got to be doing work during this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because if you don't do it now, Absolutely. you're going to get it all at once. And that dynamic is different. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think even that perception um, of he's going to come find me and I don't need to do anything. I think that that is a really, that's, I wish that for everyone. And I don't know that that is true, that if I sit in my apartment, someone (laughs) is going to knock on my door, and I'm going to meet the love of my life. Um, So I think in, in those moments of waiting, that you are learning more about yourself and that you're being in up you're having opportunities where you can meet people that's true the people that are like oh he's just gonna come to my doorstep if someone came to their doorstep they wouldn't even open the door so let's just be realistic half the time Oh, that's true right stranger danger is a real thing Urban it is paranoia is a real yes. thing <laughs> so yes <laughs> so how long do you hold on to friendships that are going nowhere and so this person they want to know especially if they're putting in all the work to maintain this friendship what do they do do they hold on do they let go is this relationship how has it been serving you or how has it been helpful to you um, are there strengths that you've noticed by being in relationship maybe this is a relationship that started because you had a shared goal or a shared activity that that naturally drew you together, but the goal is achieved or the activity ends and you're kind of like, all right, I'm not really sure. I think that's, that's when you ask the question, is this still serving me? Is this still what I need? 
Um, and I think looking at your needs and relationships, I think that that changes throughout your lifetime, right? So my longing for friendships in my 20s is definitely different than what it is right now. Um, and I think it changes partially out of our own capacity, our emotional capacity, our time capacity, our energy, our space. So I think it's important to also look at, am I at a point in my life where I can have this type of relationship where I am doing the one that is chasing them around, or I'm the one who's listening all the time. It, you know, you may come to that and say, oh yeah, I can do that. Or you may say, actually, no, I, that's not for me anymore. So I definitely agree. A lot of our relationships, like you were saying, you know, they go through the different phases and seasons of our lives. And sometimes your mindset just improves and people just will automatically kind of fall off. And so like you were saying, really yeah. looking at Again, it's the, the basically you're talking about communicating your needs, and a lot of people have a lot of difficulty with this, and so that's why these transitions are a little bit more painful than they mm. should be. I tell people you shouldn't burn bridges, but mm. if you're doing all the work and you don't have that type of emotional capacity, you have to have compassion on yourself, and you have to realize that your priorities change, and you are not that your friendship is mm -hmm. not this person's priority. So if you're okay with that, that's yeah. perfectly fine. But I know I've gotten to a, a place in life where I can no longer just be squandering time, because I believe that we are held accountable for the time that we spend mm -hmm. here. And if I'm wasting it chasing after someone that has no regard, like I'm going to have to answer for that. And I'm just not really interested. So I'm just like, okay, mm. I assess. And I'm like, mm. there is an author, Brendan Bouchard. There's one of his books. Mm. It was an audio book and I listened to it. And he said that every three months he goes through his friendships and he puts them in different groups. It's been a while, so I don't remember, but he was like, there are those people that he talks to at least once a week or once every two weeks. There are those people that it's once a month and there are those people that kind of fall off or they mm. only come when they want something. So he doesn't cut them yeah. off. He just reprioritizes their position in his life. And mm. I was like, that is wonderful. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's not cutting off. It's not getting angry. It's not telling yeah. off. It's basically, you know, reprioritizing, like you do with everything else. So I thought that was a really interesting way to yep. frame it. So yeah, it's really, it's, it's intentional and it's not judging, you know, who's in that one, who's in the category that I talk to weekly versus the person that I only talk to whenever they reach out to me. It's just noticing it. Um, yeah, that's really wise. Because as you were saying, like, as you get older, and then as you know, as you enter, you know, if you get married, if you have children, your time, you don't have limitless time, especially when you have children. I have friends that have kids, <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm praying for you, because they have like, mm -hmm. multiple, and I'm just like, because, you, you know, that is your responsibility, you need to make sure you take care of your children, you teach them those ba basics, you help them unlearn any patterns they're learning. So that is time intensive as it is. And then yeah. you're also married so you you know have to cultivate that relationship with your spouse and then work so your time does become more limited and you don't want to yeah you have to really be intentional and be careful with your time because it's it is really a limited asset yeah absolutely and i think also 
you know, if you have kids or even if you're just married, the idea of who do I want in my inner circle that is going to be exposed to my family? You know, I think that is another thing that um, you need to consider when you're thinking, should I stay in this relationship or should I not? That is very true. That is very true. So the next question is, do you need to tell people why you cut them off or do you just do it? (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate the honesty of that question. (laughs) And I have experienced this in terms of cutting people off. So uh, I will say that if, all jokes aside, if the relationship is abusive, if it's manipulative, if there's any sense that someone has control over you, you absolutely do not owe them an explanation for why you're cutting off. And in most of those type of situations, it's safer to exit with a clean break that yeah. does not have that type of communication. If abuse or power is not something that's on the table, again, I have a few questions for you to consider. The first one would be, how will this help me to have this conversation with them? So I often say in counseling that when people come to counseling, they should be having a new experience of themselves and a new experience in their relationships. And so if your tendency is to cut and run, and that is something that you've said, oh, maybe I don't want to do that because it doesn't, because I'm still going to see this person again, they're, they're part of my family and they're going to be at the next family reunion, then I think that it does help to explore what it would look like to have a conversation with that person. On the other hand, if you are someone who cuts them, cuts people off left and right because they looked at you funny or whatever, you know, I think that those are the moments where you say, is there something about me that is causing this pattern of cutting off? Am I afraid of being hurt? Is that anxiety or the tension that I feel of being uncomfortable in this relationship too much for me to handle? And so that's why I'm just going to leave. So I think it starts with knowing what kind of pattern do I usually have in my relationships when I leave them? Those are some really good questions to ask. And I don't think that people really think of those questions to ask. So, you know, if someone has a pattern of cutting and running, maybe this is an area of growth that they can have. Maybe they can learn to communicate a little clearer, even if it may have a negative result. Cause I think a lot of people are scared of that neg- someone else's negative reaction. But in any type of relationship, when you're communicating with people, that is always there. You can't mm-hmm. control that person. All you can do is make sure that you are communicating clearly, not with emotion, not yelling, not blaming. Make sure that you have clear communication. If they, they, if they are upset about it, that is, not, that is not your responsibility. And I think that people don't separate that. Correct. They view it as a personal like a, a personal judgment. I don't think that it is, but um, I'll agree. Mm-hmm. Those tough conversations are very difficult. They give me anxiety. So, you know, Absolutely. just saying. <laughs> yeah, but I think especially 
because I've had this experience of cutting off, but then I'm around this person all the time. And there's just kind of this elephant in the room. And mm-hmm. if you're fine with that tension of elephant in the room, that's the thing. But I would also say they are probably going to reach out to you because if you've had any type of relationship with them, they're going to notice that something is different. And so you can either decide, am I going to be the one to bring up this conversation or uh, am I, am I okay with this other person bringing it up and maybe catching me off guard? That's very true. That is very true. I think it's always better to be prepared and then also make sure you do the work to learn how to communicate clearly um, with other people, with yourself, number one, but definitely with other people. So our last question is, how do you have difficult conversations with close friends and significant others? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's very similar to what we've been talking about before. Do do you know any more of the context of that question? I don't. Just because it'll help guide my answer. Okay. I really don't. Oh, man. You can give just just general, because I didn't get anything specific from them people in significant other relationships to have difficult conversations. I think it's definitely okay to give someone a heads up that you'd like to talk about a specific topic with them. I, I think that oftentimes we will say to someone like, oh, I have this thing that I want to talk to you about and I'll talk to you about it after work, but you tell them what it is. That drives mm-hmm. people crazy. Yes. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's okay to give people a heads up of the context of the conversation that you want to have. And then I think starting off with um, using I statements, like I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. It causes me to feel this way. The type of help that I would really like to receive in this situation is this, but kind of sticking to the I statements. And then I think keeping in mind that you are on the same team, Mm -hmm. that at the end of this conversation, I still want to be with you, that this conversation has not changed my like of you. I think that those are also important to communicate throughout that conversation. Okay, that makes sense. So just reaffirming that, you know, this is not changing anything. It's just an issue that, Mm -hmm. or I want to tell you how I feel about whatever specific issue. And then again, like you said, focusing on I and not blaming because that's never good. And so you can have that (laughs) conversation without getting all the emotions all in there. Yeah, you know, and I think the other thing is because it's not like we can always control when our emotions are coming up or not. But if it is starting to feel like that is all I feel in the room, it's okay to take a break. It's okay to say I'm going to revisit this. I think that, you know, it that's one thing in the counseling session that's really interesting is oftentimes I will bring things up from a previous session that we've talked about like an area of concern. And so I think for people who uh, 
you know, has experience of once it's done, it's over, we don't need to talk about it anymore. It's a different experience for them to come back and revisit. And so it's the same thing when you're having a difficult conversation. If it gets too emotional, if you're realizing that the next word that comes out of your mouth is not going to be redeemable, mm-hmm. take a pause, take a break, and let them know that you you do want to return to the conversation, but just kind of after things have cooled off. Okay. You let them know what that you want to talk about a specific issue. You focus on I, and then you also make sure you're having a respectful conversation. So managing their emotions and if the emotions get too high, there's nothing back, nothing wrong with stepping back and saying, can we revisit this later? Absolutely. I think that's great and allows both parties to feel heard and respected. And I think that's kind of what goes out of the door when Mm. people have conversations specifically based on trigger emotions. Absolutely. Well, Pam, it's been wonderful. And I thank you so much for taking time out of your day and just giving us the tips on how to maintain our relationships because a lot of people don't realize the impact it really does have on your health. And so... Mm Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, they, there's a couple different directories, but I will point you to Optimum Joy Clinical Counseling's website. That's the best way to hear more about me, to read a number of the blogs that I've written on this topic, as well as many others, and to learn more about our practice. That is great. So thank you again for agreeing to do this interview. We've learned a lot about maintaining our, you know, getting to know more about ourselves and then being authentic when we enter relationships with others and then having that clear communication, respect, and then knowing our boundaries for when our emotions are going wild, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, Dr. Blessing. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Wealthier Together podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and share this podcast with a friend.